can't be neutral on the moving train I told y'all before You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught How do you know what they was taught was correct? Y'all you know I mean? Dig into the real history of this country And the fact that it was built on blood Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes, at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. On that site, you'll find links to my other work, and you'll also find links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece published at movingtrainmedia.com. On 9-11. The hijacking of flights on September 11, 2001, and the use of those hijacked aircraft to attack buildings in New York and Virginia, as well as the failed attempt which crashed in Pennsylvania, was a tragedy. The response by the U.S. government, supported by the American public, was a greater tragedy. George W. Bush, who barely won the presidency with the help of the Supreme Court halting recounts in Florida, saw his approval rating go up to 86%. Mayor Rudy Giuliani, remember Rudy? was named Times Person of the Year. Overt U.S. nationalism exploded with American flags flying everywhere, as did anti-Muslim hate crime, which grew 1,600% in 2001. Anti-Muslim hate crime in the U.S. remains at about five times the rate it was prior to 9-11. After the attacks on 9-11, the U.S. government and media set into motion its latest plans for war. The U.S. government always has plans for war. It is how empires function. Always planning and waiting and instigating for a triggering action that will give them the cover they need to bend the will of the people towards another war, another bombing, another, quote, intervention, to expand the empire and gain strategic advantage and access to wealth and resources. In its relentless pursuit of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the U.S. government media complex lied. Quote, they hate our freedoms, said George Bush, who should have known that they mostly hated our actions, especially our use of Saudi territory to attack Iraq in the first Iraq war. And of course, the U.S. government strung together a relentless litany of lies to propagandize the public that Saddam Hussein was evil and was a threat to the U.S., culminating in Colin Powell's infamous presentation to the United Nations Security Council. The U.S. media pushed all of these lies out to the public with virtually no dissent. In its relentless pursuit of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, The U.S. government media complex concealed evidence. It continues to conceal evidence gathered in the FBI investigation of 9-11, some of which, it is expected, implicates Saudi Arabia. Biden has ordered that more of that evidence be declassified over the next six months. In its relentless pursuit of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the U.S. government media complex rejected opportunities to avoid war. The Taliban made overtures to turn over Osama bin Laden to a neutral party for trial before 9-11 for the U.S. Embassy attacks in Kenya and Tanzania and for the USS Cole attack. The U.S. government ignored the offers. The Taliban made a similar offer after the U.S. began bombing in 2001, in something like the first two weeks, which was rejected by the Bush administration. Empires require propaganda as well as brute force to maintain themselves, and the U.S. government has developed one of the most impressive propaganda systems in the modern era. Through the education system and what is described as the, quote, free press, the U.S. government conditions the U.S. public to believe an underlying narrative 
that it manipulates to generate desired responses for and against whatever it chooses. The free press, of course, is a lie. When you have a commercial media apparatus dependent on advertising dollars for survival, and those advertisers are national and international corporations, that press is not free, especially when those same corporations fund elections and fund the people in government. The influence is constant and powerful. While MSNBC launched a regular program with Phil Donahue in the summer of 2002, they promptly canceled it in February 2003 when it was the highest rated show on the network for its potential of becoming, quote, a home for the liberal anti-war agenda as the U.S. government and the rest of the commercial media beat the drums for war in Iraq. Even when it was airing, the network put significant pressure on Donahue to slant the content, calling for two conservative or pro-war guests for every liberal or anti-war guest. So thus was born the, quote, war on terrorism, and the nation applauded, not realizing that terrorism was not an entity with whom you could go to war. Terrorism can be used outside of war, but is also a tactic of war and is inevitably practiced by both sides in nearly every war. As Howard Zinn said, quote, How can you have a war on terrorism when war itself is terrorism? And hundreds of thousands died, and millions were harmed in so many ways, and the world is no safer. And on top of the casualties and deaths at the hands of our military was the loss of our freedoms. George Bush and the U.S. Congress did more to harm our freedoms after 9-11 than the terrorists did. We got the Department of Homeland Security, enhanced spying, the Patriot Act, torture and detention without trial in Guantanamo Bay and elsewhere. The assault on our freedoms by our own government after 9-11 were real and lasting. The U.S. government response to 9-11 was a greater tragedy than the terrible tragedy of 9-11. Next up is a piece written by Tom Engelhart, published at TomDispatch.com. The Decline and Fall of the Roman, whoops, American Empire. They weren't kidding when they called Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. Indeed, that cemetery has just taken another imperial body. And it wasn't pretty, was it? Not that anyone should be surprised. Even after 20 years of preparation, a burial never is. In fact, the shock and awfulness in Kabul and Washington over these last weeks shouldn't have been surprising given our history. After all, we were the ones who prepared the ground and dug the grave for the previous internment in that very cemetery. That, of course, took place between 1979 and 1989, when Washington had no hesitation about using the most extreme Islamists, arming, funding, training, and advising them to ensure that one more imperial carcass, that of the Soviet Union, would be buried there. Side note, Washington has very few qualms about using Islamists wherever they serve our needs, such as in Syria. When on February 15, 1989, the Red Army finally left Afghanistan, crossing the Friendship Bridge into Uzbekistan, Soviet Commander General Boris Gromov, the last man out, said, quote, That's it. Not one Soviet soldier or officer is behind my back. It was his way of saying, so long, farewell, good riddance to the endless war that the leader of the Soviet Union had by then taken to calling the bleeding wound. Yet, in its own strange fashion, that graveyard would come home with them. After all, they returned to a bankrupt land sucked dry by that failed war against those American and Saudi-backed Islamist extremists. Two years later, the Soviet Union would implode, leaving just one truly great power on planet Earth. Along with, of course, those very extremists Washington had built into a USSR-destroying force. Only a decade later, in response to an air force manned by 19 mostly Saudi hijackers dispatched by Osama bin Laden, a rich Saudi prince 
who had been part of our anti-Soviet effort in Afghanistan, the world's, quote, sole superpower would head directly for that graveyard, as bin Laden desired. Despite the American experience in Vietnam during the previous century, the Afghan effort of the 1980s was meant to give the USSR its own Vietnam. Key Bush administration officials were so sure of themselves that, as the New York Times recently reported, they wouldn't even consider letting the leaders of the Taliban negotiate a surrender once our invasion began. On September 11, 2001, in the ruins of the Pentagon, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld had already given an aide these instructions, referring not just to bin Laden, but Iraqi ruler Saddam Hussein, quote, Go massive. Sweep it up. All up. Things related and not. Now, he insisted, the United States is not inclined to negotiate surrenders. Allow a surrender and have everything grind to a disappointing halt? Not a chance. Not when the Afghan war was the beginning of what was to be an American triumph of global proportions. After all the future invasion of Iraq and the domination of the oil-rich greater Middle East by one and only power on the planet, were already on the agenda. How could the leaders of such a confident land with a military funded at levels the next most powerful countries combined couldn't match have imagined its own 2021 version of surrender. And yet, once again, 20 years later, Afghanistan has quite visibly and horrifyingly become a graveyard of empire, as well, of course, as a graveyard for Afghans. Perhaps it's only fitting that the Secretary of Defense, who refused the surrender of the enemy in 2001, was recently buried in Arlington National Cemetery with full honors. In fact, the present Secretary of Defense and the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff both reportedly knelt before Mr. Rumsfeld's widow, Joyce, who was in a wheelchair, and presented her with the flag from her husband's coffin. Meanwhile, Joe Biden was the third president since George W. Bush and crew launched this country's forever wars to find himself floundering haplessly in that same graveyard of empires. If the Soviet example didn't come to mind... It should have, as Democrats and Republicans, President Biden and former President Trump, flailed at each other over the supposedly deep feelings for the poor Afghans being left behind, while this country withdrew its troops from Kabul airport in a land where, quote, rest in peace has long had no meaning. Here's the thing, though. Don't assume that Afghanistan is the only imperial graveyard around, or that the U.S. can simply withdraw however ineptly, chaotically, and bloodily, leaving that country to history and the Taliban. Put another way, even though events in Kabul and its surroundings took over the mainstream news recently, the Soviet example should remind us that when it comes to empires, imperial graveyards are hardly restricted to Afghanistan. In fact, it might be worth taking a step back to look at the big picture. For decades, the U.S. has been involved in a global project that has come to be called nation-building, even if from Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia to Afghanistan and Iraq, it often seemed an endless exercise in nation-unbuilding. An imperial power for the, of the first order, the United States long ago largely rejected the idea of straightforward colonies. In the years of the Cold War, and then of the War on Terror, its leaders were instead remarkably focused on setting up an unparalleled empire of military bases and garrisons on a global scale. This, and the wars that went with it, have been the unsettling American imperial project since World War II. And that unsettling should be taken quite literally. Even before recent events in Afghanistan, Brown University's invaluable Costs of War project estimated that this country's conflicts of the last two decades across the greater Middle East and Africa had displaced at least 38 million people, which should be considered nation-unbuilding of the First Order. Since the Cold War began, Washington has engaged in an endless series of interventions around the planet, from Iran to the Congo, Chile to Guatemala, as well as in conflicts large and small. Now with Joe Biden having withdrawn from America's disastrous Afghan war, you might wonder whether it's all finally coming to an end, 
even if the U.S. still insists on maintaining 750 sizable military bases globally. Count on this, though. The politicians of the great power that hasn't won a significant war since 1945 will agree on one thing, that the Pentagon and the military-industrial complex deserve yet more funding, no matter what else doesn't. In truth, those institutions have been the major recipients of actual infrastructure spending over much of what, may, what might still be thought of as the American century. They've been the true winners in the society, along with the billionaires, who, even in the midst of a grotesque pandemic, raked in profits in a historic fashion. In the process, those tycoons created possibly the largest inequality gap on the planet, one that could destabilize a democracy even if nothing else were going on. The losers? Don't even get me started. Or think of it this way. Yes, in August 2021, it was Kabul, not Washington, D.C., that fell to the enemy. But the nation unbuilding project, in which this country has been involved over these last decades, hasn't remained thousands of miles away. Only half noticed here, it's been coming home, big time. Donald Trump's rise to the presidency amid election promises to end America's endless wars should really be seen as part of that war-induced unbuilding project at home. In his own strange fashion, the Donald was Kabul before its time and his rise to power unimaginable without those distant conflicts and the spending that went with them, all of which, however unnoticed, unsettled significant parts of this society. You can tell a lot about a country if you know where its politicians unanimously agree to invest taxpayer dollars. At this very moment, the U.S. is in a series of crises, none worse than the heat, fire, and flood season that's hit not just the mega drought-ridden West or the inundated Tennessee or hurricane-wracked Louisiana or the tropical storm-tossed Northeast, but the whole country. Unbearable warmth, humidity, fires, smoke, storms, and power outages. That's us. Fortunately, as always, Congress stands in remarkable unanimity when it comes to investing money where it truly matters. And no, you knew perfectly well that I wasn't referring to the creation of a green energy economy. In fact, Republicans wouldn't hear of it. And the Biden administration, while officially backing the idea, has already issued more than 2,000 permits to fossil fuel companies for new drilling and fracking on federal lands. In August, the president even called on OPEC, the Saudis in particular, to produce significantly more oil to halt a further rise in gas prices at the pump. As America's eternally losing generals come home from a Kabul, what I actually had in mind was the one thing that just about everyone in Washington seems to agree on, funding the military-industrial complex beyond their wildest dreams. Congress has recently spent months trying to pass a bill that would, over a number of years, invest an extra $550 billion in this country's badly tattered infrastructure, but never needs time like that to pass Pentagon and other national security budgets that for years now have added up to well over a trillion dollars annually. And side note, in fact, Congress has just passed uh, an increase to the insane spending that we do on the military of another $35 billion, roughly. In another world, with the Afghan war ending and U.S. forces at least theoretically coming home, it might seem logical to radically cut back on the money invested in the military-industrial complex and its ever more expensive weaponry. In another American world on an increasingly endangered planet, significantly scaling back American forces in every way and investing our tax dollars in a very different kind of defense would seem logical indeed. And yet, as of this moment, as Greg Jaffe writes at the Washington Post, the Pentagon continues to suck up, quote, a larger share of discretionary spending than any other government agency. Fortunately, for those who want to keep funding U.S. military in the usual fashion, there's a new enemy out there with which to replace the Taliban. 
one that the Biden foreign policy team and a pivoting military is already remarkably eager to confront. China. At least when the latest infrastructure money is spent, if that compromise bill ever really makes it through a Congress that can't tie its own shoelaces, something will be accomplished. Bridges and roads will be repaired, new electric vehicle charging stations set up, and so on. When, however, the Pentagon spends the money just about everyone in Washington agrees it should have, we're guaranteed yet more weaponry this country doesn't need, poorly produced for thoroughly exorbitant sums, if not more failed wars as well. I mean, just think about what the American taxpayer, quote, invested in the losing wars of this century. According to Brown University's Costs of War Project, $2.313 trillion went into that disastrous Afghan war alone, and at least $6.4 trillion by 2020 into the full-scale war on terror. And that doesn't even include the estimated future costs of caring for American veterans of those conflicts. In the end, the total may prove to be in the $8 trillion range. Hey, at least $88 billion just went to supplying and training the Afghan military, most of which didn't even exist by August 2021, and the rest of which melted away when the Taliban advanced. Just imagine for a minute where we might really be today if Congress had spent close to $8 trillion rebuilding this society rather than unbuilding and wrecking distant ones. Rest assured, this is not the country that ended World War II in triumph, or even the one that outlasted the Soviet Union and whose politicians then declared it the most exceptional, indispensable nation ever. This is a land that's crumbling before our eyes, being unbuilt month by month, year by year. Its political system is on the verge of dissolving into who knows what amid a raft of voter suppression laws, wild claims about the most recent presidential election, an assault on the capital itself, and conspiracy theories galore. Its political parties seem ever more hostile, disturbed, and disparate. Its economy is a gem of inequality, its infrastructure crumbling, its society seemingly coming apart at the seams. And on a planet that could be turning into a genuine graveyard of empires and of so much else, keep in mind that if you're losing your war with climate change, you can't withdraw from it. You can't declare defeat and go home. You're already home in the increasingly dysfunctional, increasingly unbuilt U.S. of A. Next up is a piece published at commondreams.org, written by Sam Pizzagatti. We denizens of the 21st century have become somewhat accustomed, inert might be the better word, to the murderous mass violence of modern warfare. We shouldn't find that at all surprising. The 20th century that gave most of us birth, after all, rates as the deadliest century in human history. Upwards of 75 million people died in World War II alone. Millions more have died in, quote, little wars since, including the nearly quarter million who perished during the 20 years of the U.S. military war in and on Afghanistan. But for our forebears back in the early decades of the 20th century, the incredible deadliness of modern warfare came as something of a shock. The carnage of World War I with its 40 million dead left people worldwide searching for new international arrangements that could prevent any repeat of modern war's horror. The Paris Peace Conferences of 1919 launched the League of Nations and sparked a series of additional global parlays. The Washington Disarmament Conference of 1920-22, the Geneva Arms Control Conference of 1925, the Geneva Disarmament Conference of 1927. In 1928, the world's top nations even signed an agreement that renounced war as an instrument of national policy. All of these steps would prove hopelessly inadequate to the task at hand. By the mid-1930s, the world was swimming in a weapons-of-war sea, 
and people still reeling for World War I, the Great War, wanted to know why. In the United States, peace seekers would follow the money to find out. Many of America's moguls, they soon realized, were getting even richer off preparing for war. These merchants of death, the era's strikingly vivid label for war profiteers, had a vested interest in perpetuating the sorts of arms races that make wars more likely. America needed millions of Americans believed to take the profit out of war. On Capitol Hill, the Democratic Senate majority set up a special committee to investigate the munitions industry and named a progressive Republican, North Dakota's Gerald Nye, to chair it. War and preparation for war, Nye noted, at the panel's founding in 1934, had precious little to do with either national honor or national defense. War had become, quote, a matter of profit for the few. The tag Merchants of Death has long since disappeared from our American political lexicon, but the problem Nye named remains. Our contemporary corporate moguls are continuing to get rich off the preparations that make wars more likely and massively multiply death counts when the actual shooting starts. America's longest war, the war in Afghanistan, offers but the latest example. We won't know for some time the total haul of our corporate executive class off the Afghan war's 20 years. But Institute for Policy Studies analysts Brian Wakamo and Sarah Anderson have come up with some initial calculations for three of the top Department of Defense contractors active in Afghanistan over the 2016 to 2020 years. The total compensation for the CEOs of these three corporate giants, Fluor, Raytheon, and Boeing amounted to $236 million. The overall personal haul for our current-day merchants of death from the carnage in Afghanistan? We would need a modern-day special congressional committee to get at that number, partly because many of the enterprises facilitating death and destruction remain privately held and need not release the annual executive pay figures that publicly traded companies must release. A modern-day, high-profile panel on war profiteering might not be a bad idea. Congressional members of that panel could start their work by reviewing the 1936 conclusions of the Senate's original Special Committee on Investigation of the Munitions Industry. Munitions companies, that committee found, have exploited, quote, opportunities to intensify the fears of the people for their neighbors and have used them to their own profit. They have ignited and exacerbated arms races by constantly striving to, quote, scare nations into a continued frantic expenditure for the latest improvements in devices of warfare. Wars, the Senate panel summed up, rarely have one single cause, but it runs against the peace of the world for selfishly interested organizations to be left free to goad and frighten nations into military activity. Do these conclusions still hold water for us today? A new special committee could ask, and if they do, what can we do to remedy the situation? Some members of the original Senate panel apparently wanted to nationalize what we now call the defense industry. That didn't happen, and today's complex of military contractors dwarfs the size of the Merchants of Death Network that Americans faced back in the 1930s. Our Pentagon and military... Lindsay Kashgarian of the National Priorities Project points out, currently, quote, take up more than half of the discretionary federal budget each year. And over half that spending goes to military contractors. Most of these contractors, adds Heidi Peltier, the director of the 20 Years of War Initiative at Boston University's Pardee Center, not Party Center, Pardee Center, essentially operate as monopolies. The excessive profits that status helps them grab are widening America's core inequality. Lockheed Martin's executive chair, at last count, is making $30.9 million a year. In 2020, execs at Lockheed and four other contracting giants, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, and General Dynamics, spent $60 million on lobbying to keep their gravy train going. Over the past two decades, the Center for Responsive Politics reports, the defense industry as a whole 
has spent $2.5 billion on lobbying, quote, to influence defense policy and directed another $285 million to political candidates friendly to contracting business as usual. How can we upset that business as usual? Reducing the size of the military budget can get us started. Contracting out fewer necessary functions, keeping defense work in-house, and reforming the contracting process itself will also be essential. But executive pay needs to be right at the heart of that reforming. No corporate execs dealing in military matters should have a huge personal stake in ballooning federal spending for war. Current federal government contracting regulations do limit how much executives can grab directly in salary from the cash their companies pocket for contract work. But corporate execs don't particularly mind these limits since they get their overwhelming bulk of their total compensation from their stock-based rewards, not their salaries. Representative Jan Schakowsky and the Congressional Progressive Caucus have a better approach. Their newly proposed Patriotic Corporations Act would, among numerous other promising provisions, give extra points in contract bidding to firms that pay their top execs no more than 100 times what they pay their most typical workers. Few defense giants these days come anywhere close to that 100 times ratio. At Raytheon, for instance, the chief exec last year pulled down 193 times the pay of the company's most typical worker. And that relatively modest gap by U.S. corporate standards came only after the Raytheon CEO took a temporary COVID time pay haircut. And for a little bit more of what is in the Patriotic Corporations Act, here is an excerpt from a piece by Sarah Anderson published at MarketWatch.com. The Patriotic Corporations Act, championed by Illinois Democrat Representative Jan Schakowsky, and backed by the 90-member Congressional Progressive Caucus, includes a long list of provisions aimed at lifting up American workers and reducing economic inequality. For instance, contractors would have to grant a week of family leave and another week of paid sick leave so employees don't have to risk infecting their co-workers. The bill would also give extra points in bidding contests to companies that meet certain equity benchmarks, such as having a gap between their CEO and median worker pay of no more than 100 to 1. Encouraging contractors to reduce internal disparities would help ensure taxpayer value, since research indicates that companies perform better when they have narrower pay gaps. Companies could also get a leg up in the procurement process if they have corporate executive C-suites that are at least 40% women and people of color and allow worker representatives on their boards. Unionized companies where employees have the chance to bargain collectively for a fair share of rewards would also get preferential treatment. The Patriotic Corporations Act also seeks to reward responsible stewards of our natural resources. A track record of environmental violations would be a disqualifier for taxpayer-funded contracts. Companies that use tax havens and other accounting tricks to stiff Uncle Sam would also have a harder time winning taxpayer support. Three profitable corporations that ranked among the top 100 federal contractors of 2020, Booz Allen Hamilton, Jacobs Engineering, and Textron, paid zero federal taxes last year, according to the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. We should be looking for new ways to unify and heal our crisis-torn populace. Rather than subsidizing corporations that widen our economic and social divides, every federal contract dollar should encourage business practices that make our nation stronger, more equitable, and resilient in the face of future crises. And I think those provisions are a band-aid. I think they're good. I think that having them rather than not having them, which as we currently don't, is better. But I think they're, they're marginal improvements. They're, you know, they're not the bold, decisive action we need to get profit out of war. They are some band-aids making a bad system and a bad process a little bit better. And finally, 
a piece written by Howard Zinn. This is, I found this at ontology.buffalo.edu. Uh, it originally was printed in the Progressive. A just cause, not a just war. And this was written in November of 2001, about one month after September 11. I believe two moral judgments can be made about the present, quote, war. The September 11 attack constitutes a crime against humanity and cannot be justified. And the bombing of Afghanistan is also a crime which cannot be justified. And yet, voices across the political spectrum, including many on the left, have described this as a just war. One longtime advocate of peace, Richard Falk, wrote in The Nation that this is, quote, the first truly just war since World War II. Robert Kuttner, another consistent supporter of social justice, declared in the American Prospect that only people on the extreme left could believe this is not a just war. I have puzzled over this. How can a war be truly just when it involves the daily killing of civilians, when it causes hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children to leave their homes to escape the bombs, when it may not find those who plan the September 11 attacks, and when it will multiply the ranks of people who are angry enough at this country to become terrorists themselves? This war amounts to a gross violation of human rights, and it will produce the exact opposite of what is wanted. It will not end terrorism. It will proliferate terrorism. I believe that the progressive supporters of the war have confused a just cause with a just war. There are unjust causes, such as the attempt of the United States to establish its power in Vietnam, or to dominate Panama, or Granada, or to subvert the government of Nicaragua. And a cause may be just, getting North Korea to withdraw from South Korea, getting Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait, or ending terrorism. But it does not follow that going to war on behalf of that cause, with the inevitable mayhem that follows, is just. The stories of the effects of our bombing are beginning to come through, in bits and pieces. Just 18 days into the bombing, the New York Times reported, quote, American forces have mistakenly hit a residential area in Kabul. Twice, U.S. planes bombed Red Cross warehouses, and a Red Cross spokesman said, quote, Now we've got 55,000 people without that food or blankets, with nothing at all. An Afghan elementary school teacher told a Washington Post reporter at the Pakistan border, when the bombs fell near my house and my baby started crying, I had no choice but to run away. A New York Times report, quote, The Pentagon acknowledged that a Navy F-A-18 dropped a 1,000-pound bomb on Sunday near what officials called a center for the elderly. The United Nations said the building was a military hospital. Several hours later, a Navy F-14 dropped two 500-pound bombs on a residential area northwest of Kabul. A UN official told a New York Times reporter that an American bombing raid on the city of Herat had used cluster bombs, which spread deadly bomblets over an area of 20 football fields. This, the Times reporter wrote, was the latest of a growing number of accounts of American bombs going astray and causing civilian casualties. An AP reporter was brought to Karam, a small mountain village hit by American bombs, and saw houses reduced to rubble. Quote, In the hospital in Jalalabad, 25 miles to the east, doctors treated what they said were 23 victims of bombing at Karam, one, a child barely two months old, swathed in bloody bandages, according to the account. Another child, neighbor said, was in the hospital because a bombing raid had killed her entire family. At least 18 fresh graves were scattered around the village. The city of Kandahar attacked for 17 straight days was reported to be a ghost town, with more than half of its 500,000 people fleeing the bombs. 
The city's electrical grid had been knocked out. The city was deprived of water since the electrical pumps could not operate. A 60-year-old farmer told the AP reporter, quote, We left in fear of our lives. Every day and every night, we hear the roaring and roaring of planes. We see the smoke, the fire. I curse them both, the Taliban and America. A New York Times report from Pakistan two weeks into the bombing campaign told of wounded civilians coming across the border. Quote, Every half hour or so throughout the day, someone was brought across on a stretcher. Most were bomb victims, missing limbs or punctured by shrapnel. A young boy, his head and one leg wrapped in bloodied bandages, clung to his father's back as the old man trudged back to Afghanistan. That was only a few weeks into the bombing, and the result had already been to frighten hundreds of thousands of Afghans into abandoning their homes and taking to the dangerous mine-strewn roads. The, quote, war against terrorism has become a war against innocent men, women, and children who are in no way responsible for the terrorist attack on New York. And yet, there are those who say this is a just war. Terrorism and war have something in common. They both involve the killing of innocent people to achieve what the killers believe is a good end. I can see an immediate objection to this equation. They, the terrorists, deliberately kill innocent people. We, the war makers, aim at, quote, military targets, and civilians are killed by accident as, quote, collateral damage. Is it really an accident when civilians die under our bombs? Even if you grant that the intention is not to kill civilians, if they nevertheless become victims again and again and again, can this be called an accident? If the deaths of civilians are inevitable in bombing, it may not be deliberate, but it is not an accident, and the bombers cannot be considered innocent. They are committing murder as surely as are the terrorists. The absurdity of claiming innocence in such cases becomes apparent when the death tolls from, quote, collateral damage reach figures far greater than the lists of the dead from even the most awful act of terrorism. Thus, the, quote, collateral damage in the Gulf War caused more people to die, hundreds of thousands, if you include the victims of our sanctions policy, than the very deliberate terrorist attack of September 11. The total of those who have died in Israel from Palestinian terrorist bombs is somewhere under 1,000. The number of dead from, quote, collateral damage in the bombing of Beirut during Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982 was roughly 6,000. We must not match the death lists. It is an ugly exercise, as if one atrocity is worse than another. No killing of innocents, whether deliberate or, quote, accidental, can be justified. My argument is that when children die at the hands of terrorists, or, whether intended or not, as a result of bombs dropped from airplanes, terrorism and war become equally unpardonable. Let's talk about, quote, military targets. The phrase is so loose that President Truman, after the nuclear bomb obliterated the population of Hiroshima, could say, quote, the world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. That was because we wished in this first attack to avoid, insofar as possible, the killing of civilians. What we are hearing now from our political leaders is, quote, We are targeting military objectives. We are trying to avoid killing civilians. But that will happen, and we regret it. Shall the American people take moral comfort from the thought that we are bombing only military targets? The reality is that the term military covers all sorts of targets that include civilian populations. When our bombers deliberately destroy, as they did in the war against Iraq, the electrical infrastructure, thus making water purification and sewage treatment plants inoperable and leading to the epidemic waterborne diseases, the deaths of children and other civilians cannot be called accidental. Recall that in the midst of the Gulf War, the U.S. military bombed an air raid shelter, killing 400 to 500 men, women, and children who were huddled to escape bombs. The claim was that it was a military target, housing communication center. 
but the reporters going through the ruins immediately afterward said there was no sign of anything like that. I suggest that the history of bombing, and no one has bombed more than this nation, is a history of endless atrocities, all calmly explained by deceptive and deadly language like accident, military targets, and collateral damage. And I don't know if he's going to mention it further on in the story, but Howard Zinn was a member of a bombing team in World War II. So when he talks about these things, he knows of it both from studying it and from being a part of it. Indeed, in both World War II and in Vietnam, the historical record shows that there was a deliberate decision to target civilians in order to destroy the morale of the enemy. Hence, the firebombing of Dresden, Hamburg, Tokyo, the B-52s over Hanoi, the jet bombers over peaceful villages in the Vietnam countryside. When some argue that we can engage in, quote, limited military action without, quote, an excessive use of force, they are ignoring the history of bombing. The momentum of war rides roughshod over limits. The moral equation in Afghanistan is clear. Civilian casualties are certain. The outcome is uncertain. No one knows what this bombing will accomplish, whether it will lead to the capture of Osama bin Laden, perhaps, or the end of the Taliban, possibly, or democratic Afghanistan, very unlikely, or an end to terrorism, almost certainly not. And meanwhile, we are terrorizing the population, not the terrorists. They are not easily terrorized. Hundreds of thousands are packing their belongings and their children into carts and leaving their homes to make dangerous journeys to places they think might be more safe. Not one human life should be expended in this reckless violence called a war against terrorism. We might examine the idea of pacifism in the light of what is going on right now. I have never used the word pacifist to describe myself because it suggests something absolute, and I am suspicious of absolutes. I want to leave openings for unpredictable possibilities. There might be situations, and even such strong pacifists as Gandhi and Martin Luther King believed this, when a small, focused act of violence against a monstrous, immediate evil would be justified. In war, however, the proportion of means to ends is very, very different. War, by its nature, is unfocused, indiscriminate, and especially in our time, when the technology is so murderous, inevitably involves the deaths of large numbers of people and the suffering of even more. Even in the, quote, small wars, Iran versus Iraq, the Nigerian war, the Afghan war, a million people die. Even a tiny war, like the one we waged in Panama, a thousand or more die. Scott Simon of NPR wrote a commentary in the Wall Street Journal on October 11, entitled, Even Pacifists Must Support This War. He tried to use a pacifist acceptance of self-defense, which approves a focused resistance to an immediate attacker, to justify this war, which he claims is, quote, self-defense. But the term self-defense does not apply when you drop bombs all over a country and kill lots of people other than your attacker. And it doesn't apply when there is no likelihood that it will achieve its desired end. Pacifism, which I define as a rejection of war, rests on a very powerful logic. In war, the means, indiscriminate killing, are immediate and certain. The ends, however desirable, are distant and uncertain. Pacifism does not mean appeasement. That word is often hurled at those who condemn the present war on Afghanistan and is accompanied by references to Churchill, Chamberlain, Munich. World War II analogies are conveniently summoned forth when there is a need to justify a war, however irrelevant to a particular situation. As a suggestion that we withdraw from Vietnam or not make war on Iraq, the word appeasement was bandied about. The glow of the, quote, good war has repeatedly been used to obscure the nature of all the bad wars we have fought since 1945. Let's examine that analogy. 
Czechoslovakia was handed to the voracious Hitler to appease him. Germany was an aggressive nation expanding its power, and to help it in its expansion was not wise. But today we do not face an expansionist power that demands to be appeased. We ourselves are the expansionist power. Troops in Saudi Arabia, bombings of Iraq, military bases all over the world, naval vessels on every sea, and that, along with Israel's expansion into the West Bank and Gaza Strip, has aroused anger. It was wrong to give up Czechoslovakia to appease Hitler. It is not wrong to withdraw our military from the Middle East or for Israel to withdraw from the occupied territories because there is no right to be there. That is not appeasement. That is justice. Opposing the bombing of Afghanistan does not constitute giving in to terrorism or appeasement. It asks that other means be found than war to solve the problems that confront us. King and Gandhi both believed in action, nonviolent direct action, which is more powerful and certainly more morally defensible than war. To reject war is not to turn the other cheek as pacifism has been caricatured. It is, in the present instance, to act in ways that do not imitate the terrorists. The United States could have treated September 11 attack as a horrific criminal act that calls for apprehending the culprits using every device of intelligence and investigation possible. Could have gone to the United Nations to enlist the aid of other countries in their pursuit and apprehension of the terrorists. There was also the avenue of negotiations. And let's not hear, what, negotiate with those monsters? The United States negotiated with, indeed, brought into power and kept in power, some of the most monstrous governments in the world. Before Bush ordered the bombers, the Taliban offered to put bin Laden on trial. This was ignored. After 10 days of air attacks, when the Taliban called for a halt to the bombing, and said they would be willing to talk about handing bin Laden to a third country for trial. The headline the next day in the New York Times read, President rejects offer by Taliban for negotiations. And Bush was quoted as saying, quote, When I said no negotiations, I meant no negotiations. That is the behavior of someone hell-bent on war. There were similar rejections of negotiating possibilities at the start of the Korean War, the war in Vietnam, the Gulf War, and the bombing of Yugoslavia. The result was an immense loss of life and incalculable human suffering. International police work and negotiations were, still are, alternatives to war. But let's not deceive ourselves, even if we succeeded in apprehending bin Laden, or, as is unlikely, destroying the entire Al-Qaeda network. That would not end the threat of terrorism which has potential recruits far beyond Al-Qaeda. To get at the roots of terrorism is complicated. Dropping bombs is simple. It is an old response to what everyone acknowledges is a very new situation. At the core of unspeakable and unjustifiable acts of terrorism are justified grievances felt by millions of people who would not themselves engage in terrorism but from whose ranks terrorists spring. Those grievances are of two kinds. The existence of profound misery, hunger, illness in much of the world, contrasted to the wealth and luxury of the West, especially the United States, and the presence of American military power everywhere in the world propping up oppressive regimes and repeatedly intervening with force to maintain U.S. hegemony. This suggests actions that not only deal with the long-term problem of terrorism, but are in themselves just. Instead of using two planes a day to drop food on Afghanistan and 100 planes to drop bombs, which have been making it difficult for the trucks of international agencies to bring in food, use 102 planes to bring food. Take the money allocated for our huge military machine and use it to combat starvation and disease around the world. One third of our military budget would annually provide clean water and sanitation facilities for the billions of people in the world who have none. Withdraw troops from Saudi Arabia because their presence near the holy shrines of Mecca and Medina angers not just bin Laden 
We need not care about angering him. But huge numbers of Arabs who are not terrorists. Stop the cruel sanctions on Iraq, which are killing more than a thousand children every week without doing anything to weaken Saddam Hussein's tyrannical hold over the country. Insist that Israel withdraw from occupied territories, something that many Israelis also think is right and which will make Israel more secure than it is now. In short, let us pull back from being a military superpower and become a humanitarian superpower. Let us be a more modest nation. We will then be more secure. The modest nations of the world don't face the threat of terrorism. Such a fundamental change in foreign policy is hardly to be expected. It would threaten too many interests. The power of political leaders, the ambitions of the military, the corporations that profit from the nation's enormous military commitments. Change will come as at other times in our history, only when American citizens, becoming better informed, having second thoughts after the first instinctive support for official policy, demand it. That change in citizen opinion, especially if it coincides with a pragmatic decision by the government that its violence isn't working, could bring about a retreat from the military solution. It might also be a first step in the rethinking of our nation's role in the world. Such a rethinking contains the promise for Americans of genuine security and for people elsewhere, the beginning of hope. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll find some links there to make a donation and links to the other projects that I'm working on. And you can listen to You Can't Be Neutral and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening. Uh, you'll notice that the, the name of this operation... Remember, at first it was going to be a crusade, but they backed off that because PR agents told them that wouldn't work. And then it was going to be infinite justice, but the PR agents said, wait a minute, you're sounding like you're divinity, so that wouldn't work. And then it was changed to enduring freedom. Uh, we know what that means, but nobody has yet pointed out, fortunately, that there's an ambiguity there. To endure means to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there are plenty of other people around the world <laughs> who have endured what we call freedom. <laughs> Again, fortunately, we have a very well-behaved, educated class, so nobody has yet pointed out this ambiguity. Uh, but if it's done, there'll be another problem to deal with. Uh, but if we can back off enough so that some more or less independent agency, maybe the UN, maybe credible NGOs, can take the lead in trying to reconstruct something from the wreckage with plenty of assistance, and we owe it to them, then maybe something would come out. Uh, beyond that, there are other problems. Uh, we certainly want to reduce the level of terror, certainly not escalate it. There's one easy way to do that, and therefore it's never discussed, namely stop participating in it. That would automatically reduce the level of terror enormously, but that you can't discuss. Well, we ought to make it possible to discuss it. So that's one easy way to reduce the level of terror. Beyond that, we should rethink the kinds of policies, and Afghanistan's not the only one, in which we organize and train terrorist armies. Uh, that has effects. Uh, we're seeing some of the effects now. September 11th is one. Rethink it. Rethink the policies that are creating a reservoir of support. Uh, exactly what the bankers and lawyers and so on are saying in places like Saudi Arabia and on the streets. It's much more bitter, as you can imagine. Uh, that's possible. You know, those policies aren't graven in stone. And furthermore, there are opportunities. It's hard to find many rays of light in the last couple of weeks, but one of them is that there is an increased openness. Lots of issues are open for discussion, even in elite circles, certainly among the general public, that were not a couple of weeks ago. That's dramatically the case. 
I mean, if a newspaper like, say, USA Today uh, can run a very good article, serious article, on life in the Gaza Strip, there's been a change. Uh, the things I mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, that's change. And among the general public, I think there's much more openness and willingness to think about things that were under the rug and so on. These are opportunities, and they should be used, at least by people who accept uh, the goal of trying to uh, reduce the level of violence and terror, uh, including potential threats that are extremely severe, could uh, make even September 11th uh, pale into insignificance.